navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. Welcome back from summer, everybody. You know, it's, uh, it's September. I can't believe it. It's a Friday after Labor Day. So thanks for joining me. Uh, I know many of you are returning from uh, going through the series we did earlier this year, the seven part on how to litigate a personal injury case. And I thank you for joining me for the start of this new series, uh, skill series on anatomy of a trial. For those of you who did not join us for the uh, how to litigate a personal injury uh, series, um, you can still get it. That's the good news. You can go to the Academy's website uh, or on my podcast, The Mentor ESQ, uh, the website, the information's on my backdrop here. And we've got all the videos, the audios, the link to, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You could download all the materials. You can get your CLE credit submitting the forms. It's all free. So you can, uh, you can do that, as will this series uh, air on the podcast. The episodes go live usually about a week after um, we record it here live, and uh, they will remain on the Mentor ESQ website uh, where you can download materials and uh, check other stuff out, which you'll see uh, in my materials here, some about what I do on that website in the podcast. So let's talk a little bit about um, this series and today, what we're going to go over. I'm really excited about it. I am literally opening up my trial notebook. Uh, you, if you've looked at the materials for today, you're going to see my uh, yellow pads and my notes, and I'm going to go through some of that with you. I usually don't like to do screen sharing, but I think I'll do a little bit of it today uh, to sort of walk you through. And the idea is to share with you what I do and what I have found success in doing uh, over the last 25 years or so, and, um, and sort of, you know, help you out, give you some ideas. I know we have a lot of new lawyers. We have a lot of seasoned lawyers on here. And as I always say, if you pick up just one tidbit that helps you uh, in your next trial, then it's worthwhile. And um, that's my goal here today. Also, just a couple of ground rules of what I like to have go on with my uh, programs here. We have the Q&A. Please, please, please feel free to put anything in the Q&A. Questions you'd like to ask me, uh, if you can supplement, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share with the community that's in attendance here, please do that. We did that all through the uh, earlier series this year, and it works out really well where everybody can share their insight. And what I've been preaching my gospel all year is that we are a community. We're here to help each other, to share our knowledge. I don't profess to know anything. I'm still learning every day. I think that's what we do as lawyers. So all I'm doing is sharing what I've uh, learned and hoping it helps you. So if others can share as well through this, please do so. Drop it in the Q&A. I will maybe address a few questions after we take a break for the codes and all of that. Otherwise, what I do is I save uh, at the end of the hour at two o'clock, I'll do a Q&A from two to 2.30. I'll try and address every single question that uh, has been posted. Uh, you don't have to stay on, but I think that's when a lot of the good stuff happens is during that Q&A from 2 to 2.30. So let's get started with the overview of this series. It's going to be a five-part series. Today, we're going to do jury selection. Uh, the next part will be on October 6th, where we're going to go through opening statements. Uh, part three will be direct examination. 
part four, cross-examination, and part five, closing arguments, summation. And the goal is to walk you through what I do for each of these, how I prepare and how I execute and deliver. And hopefully you'll gain some value from this and I will share with you sort of what goes on in my head in my creative process, in my preparation process, my notes, my outlines, um, and how I, I get ready to deliver in these uh, cases. All right, so first things first, jury selection today. There's lots of stuff out there about jury selection, as you all know. There's books, there's um, consultants, there's CLEs. And I have found that part of what's always frustrating for us as lawyers is we want to know, how do you pick a good jury? What do you do? And there's no answer to that. And there's really no science to selecting a good jury. Ultimately, you have no idea if you've selected a good jury. That's the truth of it. Because you're thrown into a room of people, you're trying to sort out the bad ones, you're trying to find people that you think will be best for your side of the case, and then the chips fall where they may. And time and time again, I learned, because I always try and speak with jurors after my trials, that the juror that's smiling, that's nodding at me the whole way, the one that had everything that I thought was perfect uh, to be in my corner on my jury, I thought I picked a great jury, and that person in particular was going to bring it home for me. That's the one that went against me. And that's happened a lot. And some of the people I'm most concerned about end up being in my corner. So the bottom line, the, the big takeaway is you just don't know. You don't know. They could be lying when they answer your questions in jury uh, duty. Um, so the goal should be, and what my goal always is when I'm going for jury duty, is a couple of things. First, I want to sort out the people that you know you just don't want the people that don't speak English, the people that clearly don't want to be there, the people that hate your side of the case, whether they hate people bringing lawsuits or they think more people should be compensated because they've been wronged. Um, so you really want to filter out the extreme ones and you want to find the ones that you think will be reasonable and most sympathetic to your side of the case. The other goal I always have when going into select a jury is to establish credibility with this room of people and potential jurors. This is the start of the trial. It's not meeting the judge. It's not opening statements. Jury selection is the start of the trial. It's when the people will, who will decide your case are looking at you, sizing you up from the minute they're showing up for jury duty, not happy to be there, and you come walking into the room. They're looking at you. They're looking at how you present, how you're dressed, how you're organized, of what you have to say, they're sizing you up. And that's going to carry from that moment all the way through to the verdict. So it's really important that you step into that room buttoned up, dressed properly, organized, not with papers all over the place. We're going to talk a lot about that through this series about how you should conduct yourself, have, have yourself organized, have your um, table and notes laid out neatly. Um, have yourself collected and presented, no loose change floating around, no pens in your hand, okay? Um, you want to present a nice, clean appearance, and it starts with jury selection. Make a good impression. Good impressions are super, super important. Then the other thing I want to focus on when I go to select a jury is addressing potential weaknesses in my case, Okay. That's what you want to sort out. You know you may have some issues and you want to make sure that 
You can sort that out right off the bat. You're going to address it in jury selection. You're going to address it in opening statement. You want to feel comfortable. You've done everything you can to downplay the weaknesses and upplay the strengths of your case. So that should be the mindset going in for jury duty. And then before you actually show up for jury duty, you're going to want to be prepared, right? If you've been to any of my CLEs, you know my mantra by now. Preparation, 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 and inform your clients, okay? And that starts with jury selection. You need to prepare yourself for jury selection. Can't wing it. And you want to inform your client after jury selection. You want to take notes. You want to let your client who's really anxious, whether it's a plaintiff or it's a defendant, about who's going to be deciding their case. So the note-taking process, um, who you select, you want to be able to give that feedback uh, and tell your client, you know, whether or not you think you've selected people who will be fair uh, for their trial, whether you think you have a problem, because there may be settlement offers on the table if you're a plaintiff. Uh, if you're a defendant, there may be a willingness to accept on behalf of the plaintiff, but you're not willing to go there, but maybe a, a jury doesn't look too good for you. Um, so it's important to communicate that with your client. So what I do to prepare is a couple of things. The first is I try and get a lay of the land, and I talked a, a bit about this in my uh, earlier series this year, but if you're not comfortable with the area where you're picking a jury, if you've never picked a jury in that location, whether it be that courthouse or that county or state or just don't know what goes on, go there before it's your time to pick a jury, even if it's the day before. Peek in, see where all the jurors gather to you know, take a look around, see what the jury pool looks like. Uh, meet the clerk, ask how things work there, ask questions. I also like to talk about how you should be embarrassed, you know, that you don't know what's going on. Um, even experienced lawyers are always asking questions because it's different everywhere. It just is. Picking a jury um, in Queens County in, you know, the jury part there uh, in Supreme Court is completely different to picking a jury in Westchester County, which is completely different from picking one in Rockland County. Picking juries in federal courts different than state. So don't be shy. Ask questions, get there a day before, speak to the clerks, ask them things, find out lawyers who are regulars in that part, ask them the questions you want to ask them, like, how does the jury process work here? Do they use White's methods? Struck? Do they limit your time? Does the judge oversee it? Is it in the courtroom? Do you pick a jury first and then meet your trial judge, or do you get assigned to a trial judge first and then pick your jury? Is it pick and pass, which means you pick a jury, and then you come back a week or so later to try the case. Is it pick and go? You pick a jury and you get going right away. These are all questions that you want to get answers to. And you want to do that before you show up for jury selection. So you feel comfortable. You feel prepared about what the process is going to be like when you show up there. You know, I find that preparation helps reduce anxiety. Uh, we all can get anxious, even the most seasoned of us, and especially newer lawyers who may have never picked a jury before. And one of the best ways to quell your anxiety is to have this level of preparation, okay? So it's really important you take the time, you go out of, what, out of your way to prepare by knowing what's ahead. Then after you've gotten the lay of the land, then what you want to do is create an outline for yourself. And the outline should be what you want to cover in jury selection. 
And I'm going to share with you my outline. I'm going to do a screenshot for a moment and uh, share with you my outline just to give you an idea of the types of things that I consider. And after we look through that outline, I'm going to show you what actually happens when you show up and walk you through that process. So I'm going to try and share my screen here. And uh, here we go. All right. Hopefully everybody sees that. Michelle, please uh, let me good. know. Okay. Looking good. All right. So this is literally, uh, many of you know from my earlier series this year, I've been enjoying talking about the very last trial I had, which was in Queens County in the Long Island City Supreme Courthouse. Uh, and it was before uh, an incredible judge, the Honorable Frederick Sampson. And I represented uh, a man named Oscar Amador, okay, originally from Ecuador. English as second language. He was riding a motorcycle and got involved in an accident uh, getting onto the Grand Central Parkway. Uh, he was turning from one direction. A car was turning from the other. They were both going onto the entrance ramp. They collided. He had bad injuries. He had a fracture, badly fractured displaced leg. He was hospitalized. Uh, he had a stroke in the hospital, loss of income, all of that. And um, and so I had certain concerns about how he would be perceived if he had to testify through a translator. Um, English wasn't his first language. Uh, I was worried a juror may think he's an outsider and not a, a regular, uh, a local, or even a U.S. citizen, which he, he was. Uh, I was concerned about how his testimony would come across through a translator. I was concerned about biases against motorcyclists. Some people think that motorcyclists are usually, uh, you know, troublemakers. Some don't. So, and this was going to be a bifurcated trial. So we we're going to do liability and then damages. So I want to show you, this is actually my notes from my jury selection of that case. And they're kind of haphazard, but there's a method to my madness. When I make my notes, I usually start nice and neat with number one uh, over, you know, the top corner. And then as I get underway, you'll see red notes, you'll see circles and and lines, and it's the process that goes on. What do you see when we get to my closing arguments, how I do it? You'll see more of these yellow sheets. So you could see here, I welcome people, okay? It's important to put them at ease and say, listen, we're not here to pry. We just want a fair jury. This case has been going on for many years, and, and ultimately we can't resolve it, and we need your help. And I need to go back to my client and let them know that I picked a fair jury. And that's all I'm trying to do. If I ask you anything that you feel that I'm prying, you know, I can speak with you outside of the room. Uh, but, you know, please know that uh, that's why I'm asking questions, just to make sure that, uh, that we have a fair jury for this trial. I let them know that they're going to learn a little bit about the case. I'm going to tell them a little bit about it, give them a little brief overview, which you're allowed to do without getting into too much detail. And... Um, and I'll let them know that, you know, I'm going to speak first to the whole panel of the jurors, and then I'll bring some up to the front, depending on what method, and we'll get to that in a moment. We're going to talk about White's instruct method. Uh, and, um, and I tell them that this is a car accident involving a motorcycle and an Audi. Um, I let them know who the defendant is and what our position is. And, um, and I'll let them know that my client was in a motorcycle, and I'm going to want to know. Uh, do they drive a motorcycle? Do they have friends or family members? Do they have any problem with motorcycles? I'll try and feel this out a little bit. So you'll see in here in my notes, I'm asking them, I'm trying to feel them out about motorcycle operators. Um, I want to know if they've been to this area, LNP and GCP, Little Neck Parkway, Grand Central Parkway. I'm going to let them 
know that I want to make sure that my client, the motorcycle operator from Ecuador, is on an equal playing field from some locals who live in Long Island uh, who are driving a car. I want to make sure that I talk to about starting on an even playing field. All right. So you can see I asked him, I say that he's an immigrant. I'm sorry, he's from Chile, not Ecuador. Uh, and that he's accented. So I ask questions. I ask if they'll keep an open mind, okay? Um, and I go through that and we'll get to a little bit more detail of how I question people. And then I put the injuries. I talk about how we may get to a second part of the trial uh, where they're gonna hear about injuries and you're allowed in jury selection to talk about your client's injuries. And you want to do that because first of all, as a plaintiff, you're giving them a heads up about what the injuries are. And if they're serious injuries, that can help out letting them know right away. So I talk about a fractured leg and an external fixator and a rod and three surgeries. And I talk about terms like fasciotomy. Have they ever heard of that? And I want to know if people ever had a serious injury, fractured leg. Have they been hospitalized? Have they had friends who have been or family members? Um, you want to, it's a way to, let them know about the seriousness of your client's injuries to try and get sympathy if you're on the plaintiff side. Um, and it's also a way to see if they can relate. Ultimately, you want to get jurors that you feel can relate not only to your client, but I want jurors who are going to relate to me that I sort of get a good vibe from. And a lot of jury selection is just getting a good vibe ultimately. That's, that's what you got to do. Because I always feel that if I can connect with a juror, then I'm, in the, I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm golden because the way that I deliver information, I think if a juror sort of gets me, that's gonna help my case. So I'm hoping they're gonna connect with me and have some connection with my client. Maybe they had a similar injury or a family member did. So you talk about that. Um, I'll ask if they've treated with a physical therapist, orthopedist or neurologist that we anticipate they'll hear from these types of experts and physicians at the trial. Now, a nice trick that I picked up from an adversary uh, at a trial many years ago before our political discourse became so divergent and extreme and it was still helpful is what, where they get their news from. Uh, because I find that, for example, if someone gets their news from MSNBC, uh, they may, may be more liberal and more pro-plaintiff. I find that if they get their news from Fox and the Post, they may be more into tort reform and more uh, against people bringing lawsuits and uh, all about personal responsibility, and if it happens, too bad, uh, and more worried about taxes somehow, than thinking that that has any impact. And, and, uh, and so, you know, asking news sources and where people get their news from, what podcasts they listen to, what they, websites, that type of thing is a really interesting way to sort of get a sense of which way someone may lean politically, which also may help you get an idea of which way they may lean in helping your case uh, one way or another. Okay. Lastly, what I have here on my outline, and I always ask as a plaintiff in jury selection, is I want to get an idea of their thoughts on this process. Like, how do they feel about the fact that my client, the plaintiff's coming to trial and ultimately going to ask for money? That's what we're here for. If, if they find that we've proven our case, we're going to ask them to compensate my client. We're going to give them guidance. But how do they feel about that? that that's how our process works. My clients are bailing themselves of this process of the judicial system. How do they feel about that? And it's not so much their answer, but how they answer. They could either be like, yeah, I got no problem with that. And you're like, all right. 
Uh, but, you know, you got to dig deep. You know, you know, what do you think? If I ask for, you know, is there a number that you think would be too outrageous, not even having heard the case? Do you have a cap in mind? You know, would you think $5 million, no matter what, you would never think of paying that? So you can throw things out there and you want to see how they respond. Someone may roll their eyes and be like, yeah, man, $5 million, you're going to have to prove a crazy case to me. Your client better be messed up, you know? Um, or they may be like, yeah, I've got no problem. You know, I'm open. I want to hear the proof uh, and, and we'll decide it. So it's not so much the answers, but how they answer and their body language. And that's where you've got to get that vibe and that feel. Okay. Um, I explained that we can't undo what's happened, that the only way our justice system works is one of compensation. So that's why I have notes on here that you can't unring a bell, that if we prove the case, do you have any problem with compensating? Do you have any limits in your mind? Um, how do you feel about lawsuits like this? I think it's really important as a plaintiff to bring this out because, you know, people, if they, if they have issues, you want to know it right now. Okay. Those are the types of people you want to get, you know, off, off a potential jury. Panel, all right. So um, I'm going to stop sharing right now. And yep. I'm going to let uh, Michelle do her code. Go ahead. If you're joining via podcast, the first attendance verification code for today's course is POD717. Again, that's POD717. Thanks, Michelle. All right. So here's what happens when you show up now. Pick a jury. Let's walk through this process. You've prepared yourself. You've got your outline of what you want to ask. You know how you want to address the weaknesses. Um, you uh, show up uh, because you've been told to report for jury selection. And um, you know if it's pick and pass by now or pick and go, and you may want to find out or you may not know until you get there. Are you going to be assigned a trial judge or do you have a trial judge? Um, or are you picking a jury first or are you going to pick a jury with the trial judge? All these things change a little bit. Generally, um, you'll find you may be picking a jury first. So I'm gonna just use that as an example. Um, now, if you're picking a jury first before you have a trial judge assigned, you're gonna show up at the, you know, at the jury selection part in the area where all the jurors are told to go. Jurors get there early in the morning. They're given videos on the process. They're all sitting in a big room and you check in with the clerk and you fill out some paperwork about the case, the trial, how many days, what it's about. They do some pre-screening, uh, getting people that shouldn't be on jurors for various reasons we won't get into now on juries. And then ultimately, you'll be put into, assigned to a room, a jury selection room, if you're not in a courtroom. And um, what the jury clerk will do is they will gather, let's say, 30 some odd jurors. And they're going to select them. They're going to call them on the PA and tell them to report to a certain room. And all the jurors show up in that room. Jurors all have cards. Think of like a big index card with their name on it, some other information. And, um, and the jury clerk collects their cards and they all go into the room and they all have to fill out questionnaires. These questionnaires are really important. They come in like carbon copies, colored. The top is like white, then there's a yellow, then there's a pink. And jurors sometimes fill them out in advance. Otherwise, they fill them out when they're in that room. And unfortunately, I don't have one to share with you, but what they, they have information, the juror's name, how old they are, 
where they live, what town, uh, family, are they married, their employment, children, what did the children do? Have they ever been sued? Have they ever sued anyone? Have they been convicted of a crime? Uh, a lot of questions like that. So it gives you sort of their basic details and information. So you'll be handed all those questionnaires, all right, at the outset. Um, usually you'll just get, when we talk about White's method, you'll get the first six or eight. Struck method, you may get them all. But ultimately what it means is you will get thrown into a room uh, with a bunch of people staring at you, sitting there looking at you. You'll be handed a bin with all of these cards with their names on it. You'll be given all these questionnaires you've never seen before. And you'll be told to get started. So it could be really overwhelming. So what you want to do is sort of explain the process. Usually the plaintiff will take the lead here. And once everyone's in, you'll be in the room. Uh, it's usually a plaintiff and a defendant. If there's multiple parties, all the lawyers are there. Someone will take the lead, usually the lead plaintiff. Welcome everybody. Say, we just got your questionnaires. Um, we ask for your patience. We're gonna take about 10 minutes to sit and go through your questionnaires. Um, and then we'll, we'll get ready to begin. So please give us a moment uh, and we'll be with you shortly. And then you sit down and you start going through the questionnaires, okay? And uh, everyone's gonna be seated in a certain order. Uh, if you're doing White's method, uh, they'll be seated in the first six seats, sometimes the first eight up front. If it's struck method, they'll be numbered all the way one through 30 based on what they're sitting. And let's talk about White's and struck right now for a moment. And by the way, you'll see in my notes that there is actually a New York City code and regulation that talks about how jury selection is supposed to proceed. And the bottom line, take a read through it. It's in the materials after you get through my podcast stuff and my CV, it's the first thing. It's the New York City rule overseeing, or the New York State rule overseeing jury selection in New York State. And it may be different if you're not in New York State, so look for your local court rules. But ultimately it'll say, there's really two ways to pick a jury, White's method or Struck method. And it's up to the discretion of the judge or JHO, which is a judicial hearing officer. Usually it's an older retired judge uh, that oversees jury selection. Uh, the judge or the jury clerk part has discretion on which method to use. So you wanna find out which it's gonna be. And they also have a lot of discretion over how jury selection is run. Judges, JHOs, they can give you extra challenges, less, so it can be a free-for-all, frankly, regardless of what these say, there's a lot of discretion. So you wanna find out when you get there and you should read through the statute that I've attached. But generally it's gonna be White's rules or Struck rules. And White's rules is of those 30 people, I'm gonna simplify this for you, but of those 30 people put in a room, the only ones that you're gonna ask real specific question of are the first six to eight people. Okay, and the way you decide who those first to six, eight are is you take all those cards, you'll usually have like a bin with like a wheel, sort of like when you go to play bingo, all right, or lotto, and they put all the numbers in and they spin it around and shuffle it all up. And then someone reaches out and they put the cards into a board known as the paddle or the jury board. And that board has room for six to 12 cards to be slotted in with numbers. Okay, so what happens is, is you get thrown into this room, you read through all of these questionnaires first, or first you figure out who the first, if it's White's method, you'll call the first six to eight up, who you pick out, 
And either one lawyer can pick all, you can take turns, plaintiff, defense, doesn't really matter. Take turns picking out names, you call them up. The six day comes sit up front, you ask for their questionnaires, you tell them, give you a few minutes, you sit down, and you're going to make notes, and we're going to go through that. That's in my notes, my materials. I'll show you how you go through it. You're going to make quick notes off the questionnaire based on who, where they're seated, their seat number, uh, and then you're going to start questioning just those six to eight, all right? So in White's method, you give introductory remarks to the entire room. Then you focus on those six to eight jurors only. You ask them questions, but I always tell everybody in the room, please listen to the questions that we're asking, even though we're not asking them of you. And it's just the six people or eight people up front, uh, because you're probably going to be up here at some point. And you're going to be asked the same question. So you might want to think now about what your response is going to be. Don't tune out and go on your phone or, 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 or check out. Pay attention. It'll save time, please. All right. And then what will happen in White's method is the plaintiff first will question those six to eight people one at a time. Then the defendant will question those people. If there's multiple plaintiffs and multiple defendants, they go in order. Everyone gets the opportunity to question. Sometimes you'll be given time restrictions. You'll be told by the judge, the JHO or the jury clerk, you know, plaintiff, you get an hour, defendant, you get an hour. You have to share time. If you have multiple defendants, you get a total of one hour. Um, they'll tell you. Um, and it's generally, it's up to you and the other lawyers. You're going to be running the show once you're in the room, unless you have a problem and need to go to the judge or the JHO to help you sort things out. And you can agree on how you want to run things. But figure about an hour uh, for each the first round, and then it gets faster as you go. After you ask all the questions, your adversary asks all the questions, you can ask follow-ups, the adversary can ask follow-ups, then you tell everybody, all right, we're going to take a 10 to 15 minute break, go use the restroom, please be back here on time. Then you step out into the hallway with the lawyers, you find a quiet spot, you take the paddle, you take your notes, and then it's your first round. Challenges, all right? You have unlimited cause challenges. There are cause challenges. That's when someone just doesn't speak the language or they say, I can't be fair. You know, I was a plaintiff in a personal injury case, badly injured. I'd like to be fair, but I really, I think I'd lean for the plaintiff. Or you have someone on the defense side who says, I'd like to be fair, but I think there's too many lawsuits and there's no way I'm going to, you know, want to help this person out. I just don't think I'll be fair. That's the catch language, all right? Can you be fair? If they say no, they're off. If they say yes, then you can't bump them for cause. So if you want to try and get someone off for cause, you need them to answer no to that question about whether they can be fair or not. Um, you and your adversary can agree on the ones for cause. If you do, you cross them out, they're done. Then after you get through all the causes, if there's anybody, those six to eight left on your board, uh, and you flip over the ones, flip over their cards to the backside if you've struck them for cause, then you get to your challenges, your peremptory challenges, which basically you can strike anybody for any reason. There are things called Batson challenges. Sometimes if your adversary thinks you really don't have a legitimate basis for striking other than their race or some other reason, uh, they, can, they can put up a stink about that. I've never seen that in my career. But you basically have three peremptories for the plaintiff, three peremptories for the defendant. And usually if there's multiple defendants, they got to share all three. Um, same with multiple plaintiffs, but again, more can be granted by whoever's overseeing jury selection, the judge or the JHO. Let's assume you each have three. In each round, first, the plaintiff goes. The plaintiff can use a peremptory. 
Say, I want to strike the third person of the six. Strike it. Then you give the panel to the adversary, the defendant. Then the defense counsel can say, I want to strike this person. You use my peremptory. If you don't use a peremptory on that first round, you cannot use any more peremptories on the first round. That's it. So if I, as a plaintiff, say I have no peremptory challenges, that means I'm good with everybody left on that board after cause. Same thing if my adversary says I have no more peremptories or none for this round. I'm good. All right. So you go back and forth. Once you use up, you can use all three in the first round. You could use one. You could use none. But once you say I'm good or you've used them all up and you're both done, if you have anybody left that hasn't been struck for cause or for a challenge, they're going to be a jerk. You go to the jury clerk and you say, we've gotten two out of this first eight. The rest are for cause of peremptory. They say, great. They will come into the room. They will take the two out, uh, or they may tell you to leave them, uh, but they usually take the two out. They say, you're going to be jurors on this case. Come sit over here, out of the room. And then everyone's out, and then you refill in new jurors. You call up another, however many you need to fill up those seats. Okay? And then you go through the whole thing again, and you ask questions again, and then you have the next round. You step outside of the room. This time, the defense starts. They have to say who, if anyone, they want to challenge first. Again, you always do the cause challenges and then the peremptories. And you go through this process until ultimately you get six jurors and usually two alternates. Depending on your case, you may agree to have more alternates if it's going to be a longer trial, uh, or but at least two. Uh, and then there's designated or non-designated. Designated is the way that you pick them uh, in the order that you select the alternates. They become alternates one, two, one, two, three, and four. Non-designated means they're just alternates. And then if you do need to pull an alternate during your trial, it's random how that's selected. Uh, and then so you don't necessarily know who you're going to get. You just know it's going to be an alternate. So that's generally White's method. Struck method is a little different. Struck method is when they bring everybody into the room, and let's say it's 30 people, you're going to number the seats, one through six in the first row. Let's say there's 10 in each row, uh, and there's three rows of 10. It would be one through 10, 11 through 20, and 21 through 30. Everyone gets a seat number. Then you get all their questionnaires. You're going to need a little more time. You may say, we're going to give you 20 minutes, come back. Um, you got to go through all their questionnaires, make all of your notes for one through 30. Then you question the whole room, not just the front. You work the whole room, okay? And then the plaintiff goes first, then the defendant, then you get back up. Each of you take turns with follow-up questions, okay? After you've questioned the whole room, then you go out with the board, okay? And you've got all the cards, and uh, you go back and forth, same way. All the causes, you knock out on the board, all right? Then let's say you've knocked out numbers one, three, five, seven, like all the odd numbers are all cause. Then you're left with numbers two, four, six, eight, you know, up through 28, up to 30. Then you go through your peremptories back and forth. And ultimately, when you've either used up all your peremptories on both sides, or you said, I'm done, I'm not using anymore, then wherever they are in that number, it could be jurors number 4, 10, 12, 20, 22, 26. Once you get those six, eight, 
the six plus two alternates would be eight plus four would be 10 people. Boom, you're done. You've got your jury selected. I personally like Struck method. More often than not, it's White's method. I think Struck is more efficient. Um, it's really only one time stepping out and going through. And you can also forecast. You can see, hmm, if I strike this person as a peremptory, then I know who's in the seats following after that haven't been struck for cause. So you can strategize and think, oh, I think they're going to strike that person because they seem really plain and friendly. Um, and so I'll probably get the next one. So there's a little strategy that goes into play. Whereas in the whites method, you don't know who the next people are that are going to fill that seat. Again, you spin the wheel and you call them up. So struck method, you can, you can foresee a lot more of who your potential jurors would be. And that gets into your strategy. Okay, so right now let's take a look at um, how you make your notes and how I make my notes. Now, I learned this method as I learned pretty much everything else I do as a lawyer, as a trial lawyer, from my father, Guy Smiley, and my partner, who many of you know. Hey, Dad, I know he's tuned in. He's still very involved. And I've learned everything from him, and uh, it proved uh, well for him, and it served me well. So I'm sharing it with you. Um, and so let's share my screen again. Okay, and now if you scroll through. Looks okay. good. All right, thanks, Michelle. What you're gonna see here is, and I'm pretty sure they have all kinds of apps, probably for the younger generation who brings your apps and your laptops and you have everything organized. I know they make something like this uh, pre-formatted, but I consider myself old school. And basically what I do is I take a legal pad and I usually have two and I use one for the lines to, to make them neat. And I, and I sit down and I quickly make out this chart. So take a look at this chart for a moment. I'll try and explain. So on the bottom left, it starts at number one. You can see Chiffon Lofton. And it goes to number six to the right. And then up to the left, it goes from number seven to 12. So what we did here in this trial, and this, by the way, was overseen by uh, Judge Sampson. Uh, the jurors were called up right into his courtroom. So what we did is the first, all the jurors were sort of seated in the um, viewing area, the audience seats behind the well. And that's where I gave the initial overviews and welcomed everyone. And then what we did in this case is we filled up the jury box. So we brought 12 in at a time and questioned those 12 for the first round. It was White's method. So what I do is I put their seat numbers we get handed their questionnaires and you got to do this fast. It's not easy. It's stressful. And I put in their names, one through six, their names seven through 12. I very quickly write their names down in all these spots. I try and quickly write notes down from their questionnaire. So let's go through one through six to give an idea. I made a quick note that Chiffon was a driver for enterprise. I put down age is 50. I put down AA, African-American. I put down um, female, that's a little female symbol. Uh, the next one I put Selena Yo or Ho um, is a female, Asian, 33. She's in marketing. Um, I have an older, uh, if you look through to uh, juror number three, I have a 72-year-old female, retired teacher, lives alone. She's testified previously, okay? Um, so all the stuff sort of in black, are, I'm trying to identify the, their, what they look like, their age, their background, their race, their employment, because I want to be able to share all of this with my client uh, or know this. 
you know, I may want to try and match up. I may think that if my client's African-American, I may want, or my client may feel more comfortable with other African-Americans on the jury, if that's an opportunity and everything else lines up. Similarly with Asian-American or white or, um, or Hispanic. So I try and get as much information as I can about these people from their, from the questionnaire. And I make all these quick notes. You can see juror number four was a 37 year old female. Uh, her husband drove a shuttle. Uh, they have five girls. They've been sued before. Okay. Then I have uh, in seat number five, uh, Laura, I can't read her last name, 38 year old from Brazil. She's been a victim. Um, she's worried she has a doctor's appointment. Then even in seat number seven, six, this is a man who's 27. He was general counsel uh, for a law firm, okay? And he had been sued before. So I make all these quick notes and everybody, and use your own shorthand, whatever you want to write down, okay? You got to do it quickly because you have a room full of people sitting there staring at you, waiting on you, all right, to get going. And as the plaintiff, you've got to do it first. The defense has more time. Then when you get up and you start going through your outline and questioning these people, then I make my notes in red, okay? And I'll make all kinds of notes. So you can see some of my notes in red. Let's look at um, number two, uh, Selena Ho. I say she doesn't drive, okay? She's driven a Vespa. Do I want someone who's never driven a car in this case? I don't know. Maybe she's been in a Vespa and that's all she drives. So maybe she can relate to my client more. That little check plus with a circle down below, means my vibe tells me I liked her ultimately at some point. So I write a plus saying, you know, I think she's probably good. All right. Then I get to juror number three on this list, Barbara Bernstein. Um, and ultimately I write here, she may relate to the defendant. Uh, and I wrote cause. Uh, and there's a reason, obviously. She wrote down, she said, she's confused. Um, so if you look through my notes, I write cause, I write pluses or minuses if I like someone or not. And then ultimately the line through means they were, we, I agreed with my adversary when we went into the hallway that these people for cause were struck. Um, I have D cause, it was probably a D peremptory for number 12 here. And then ultimately out of all of this, these first 12, it looks like we got one, uh, we got a juror number two in seat number two. Um, we got a juror number three uh, in seat number four, and we must have gotten a juror number one somehow uh, that's not here. I don't know how this sort of worked out, but um, I write down the juror when we get them placed, what jurors they are. Then when we refill the seat, um, oh, here we go. Uh, this might have been an earlier round juror number one. It turned out was this guy, Stuart Shulman. Um, we all agreed on him. Uh, juror number four, I wrote down. I can see the defense use a peremptory on number 10 from that seat. So this is how I organize and keep my notes. People do it differently. This is my method. Like I said, I'm showing you what I did. And ultimately, um, I had one more round and I put them in the seats. And then we see we got juror number six out of it. We got alternate number one, alternate number two. We got juror number five. I remember juror number five from this trial. Um, a 50-year-old uh, Greek man who's really into cars. He liked classic cars. He uh, worked on his own cars. He's a mechanic. I figured, look, you know, I think he'll relate to a guy. He has motorcycles. I have down here rides motorcycles. 
I'm a car guy. Many of you know, I'm into cars and classic cars. I was like, all right, this guy's going to connect with me. He likes cars. He has motorcycles. I think he's going to be a good juror. So fortunately he got, he didn't get struck. Uh, maybe my adversary thought he'd be good. And so this is how I go through the process. Okay. I'm going to stop sharing for a moment. And uh, why don't you do your second round of codes now, uh, Michelle, that's all. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's podcast is POD832. That's POD832. So I have five minutes left in this first hour. Uh, if you want to find out what happened with this trial and this jury, um, you're going to have to stay for the Q&A because I'm going to use my last five minutes and I'll, and I'll be happy to share that with you in the Q&A. But the last five minutes, um, I'm always about getting along with my adversary, many of you know that already, and being practical. And that goes throughout the trial. Look, you can, you know, the old school way, what I learned from my father is you can fight like hell in a courtroom, in a trial. Trials are grueling. You, you have to respect your adversaries because they're working late at night. They're preparing just like you are. They're going through the same anxieties and concerns and their clients are as concerned that they, who they have to report to. So you're in the trenches together. You can respect each other's work and be kind to each other. There's no reason not to. And so that starts with jury selection also. And I'll talk a little bit more about that as we get underway with more with the future parts of this case. But starting in jury selection, I always talk with my adversary and I'm like, listen, I don't want jurors who don't want to be here. You know, it's clear. You get a sense that they just don't want to be there. They're checked out. They're coming up with some nonsense excuse or really trying to work their way out. So I try and see if I can get an agreement from my adversary that, look, let's not put anybody on this jury who really doesn't want to be here. It's not going to do any of us any good. So I always try and do that. Try to agree on causes. Um, I also... You never want anyone who just clearly doesn't understand the language, you know, and in fairness, you know, if there's someone that is so over the top your way, sometimes you hate to do it, but, you know, you got to let them go for cause sometimes because it's going to go back and forth, you know, because then there's going to be someone over the top against you and, you know, your adversary can say, use your peremptory, buddy, or, you know, or sorry. So if you could understand where each is coming from, there's forced trading you can do. Listen, if you're good, I'm willing to work. Let's keep this. Sometimes you're running out of time. I'm like, listen, I don't want to get another panel tomorrow. All we need is one alternate. Let's get this done. You know, if we agree to this, would you be willing to do that if I strike this person? So you can have those conversations and they're good conversations to have. Ultimately, in fairness, you want, you know, both sides want a juror that's going to be fair. Obviously, you want some a jury that you're going to vibe with, but a lot of it is how you interact. And look, sometimes they're going to bust chops your adversary. You know, I get in, I start talking. I've had adversaries on cases that bust my chops from the minute of jury selection. I start talking about it, something and they get up, whoa, 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 Mr. Smiley, let's not go there. You know, we shouldn't be talking about that. Can we step outside? And you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to have commentary like that in front of jurors and make jurors think that I don't appreciate that. You're speaking out of line, making them think I'm doing something wrong when I'm not. Um, so agree. Listen, if we have an issue. Hold on to it for a second. Let's agree. You know, hey, do you mind if we quickly step outside? No grandstanding in front of jurors. No busting chops. You know, let somebody talk. And then if you have issues with each other, say, hey, can we just take a short break, counsel? Can we just meet outside for a few minutes? Step outside. Show each other courtesy and respect. 
That's what this profession's about and what we need to do. And it starts with jury selection. So I encourage that. Um, oh, the course evaluation just popped up. Don't do that to me. You um, still have two minutes. You still all right, thank minutes. you. All right, so ultimately you'll get through. You'll have a jury selected. Keep your notes. Keep the questionnaire copies if you can. Usually they ask for your copies back, but sometimes they don't. If they don't, keep your copies. We're going to talk about that in closing argument because people list their hobbies. There's a section for that on the questionnaires. So let's say they, you know, they put riding a bicycle. Then when I'm up talking about damages, I like to see what everyone's hobby is. So that when I'm lecturing to the jury, I'm saying, you know, we all have things we love. My client loved to go for hikes as much as some of you may love to go for a bike ride. You know, you don't have to look exactly, or maybe you do look at that jury. Say, and imagine if that was taken away from me. That's what was taken away from my client as a result of this accident. My client will never be able to go for a hike again. And that has, you know, that, that's a loss to them. And that's a loss that I'm asking for you to compensate them for because it was the fault of the defendant, right? So keep those questionnaires if you can. You have your jury list. You have your jurors. You go with your gut. Um, Briefly, and I know the two o'clock hour is up. So those of you who want to bail, you can bail. Those of you who want to hang in there with me, please do so. I have more to share with you and we'll hit the Q&As. But ultimately, look, there's no science. I'm not better at selecting a jury than any one of you is, okay? You have to go with your gut ultimately. It's all right on a break to call someone. Call me, call your best friend, call your partner, call an associate and say, I don't know. I, this person says, I had one, just a quick little story. I had somebody, my, one of my very first trials was a dental malpractice case. It was a no pay in New York County. I was selecting a jury and a young woman on the jury panel was in law school. Her best friend was in dental school and I was bringing in a case against a dentist. Most people say you don't want to put lawyers on for whatever reason. I, I don't know. I haven't decided on that yet, but I was new. I was wondering about it. And I was like, you know what? If her best friend is a, in dental school, and she's talking about, oh, I'm in this case, and this guy's suing dentists. My, everything was telling me I shouldn't put this person on the jury. But my gut was telling me, I like this person. I think she's going to get me and, and, and like my client and go for it. So ultimately, I think I bounced it off my father. He's like, go with what you think. Go with your gut. And I put her on the jury and I won. And it was, I think it was unanimous or at least five, one. And she was in my corner the whole way. So, um, and then just another quick little brief uh, anecdote. Uh, many of you know, I've talked about a case where I represented a young man who was intoxicated um, after going out to watch hockey game on TV on the Upper West Side. He gets on the train to go home or he wanted to get on the train. He was intoxicated and he passed out on the tracks. Train came in, ran him over. He lost his leg, okay? And I was bringing in case against the New York City Transit Authority. And my big concern off the bat in jury selection and opening statement was, can you conceive of the fact that even though my client was intoxicated and fell on the tracks, that the Transit Authority could be entirely at fault for this? Can you even understand that? Are you open to that? Are you open to knowing that there could, this could have been prevented, that they could have stopped and they should have stopped? That's going to be our argument. I just need to know you're open to hearing that. And some of them are like, Mr. Smiley, you're crazy, you know, coming in here thinking you've got a case. And, um, 
And I had one juror in the pool who was my client's age in his 20s. He's like, I go out drinking all the time. I take subways home. I passed out on the train home. Who has the money to get an Uber or whatever else? He's like, I don't fault your guy. You know, I have an open mind. I thought this guy was going to be in my corner the whole way. I thought I picked the perfect juror that somehow I got him on without being struck. And then the trial was pretty long. He had to leave and we had to put an alternate in. We brought him in with the judge to, with everyone's permission to question him on his thoughts of the case so far. And he turned to me and he's like, man, he's like, I know I said I'd do that. He's like, but your guy was totally at fault. If I did that, I'd be, you know, I'd be at fault too. You know, maybe I'd give him his medical wages for it, uh, his lost, uh, his lost medicals uh, and his bills. But otherwise, you know, and yeah, I know he lost his leg, but my buddy lost his leg and he wrestles and he could do more stuff than I can do with his prosthetic device. And my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe this guy that I thought I picked was going to be great. And fortunately, he was off the jury. I won that case. Fortunately, it went well. But um, you just don't know. That's the takeaway. Go be prepared. Go with your gut and hope for the best. All right. That's those, those are my parting ways. Hopefully um, you found some value in this. This is how the series is going to be opening statements. I'm going to give you my outlines. I'm going to talk about how I stand up, how I start them, you know, how I structure them, um, how I deliver them. And uh, we're going to do that all the way through, you know, the rest until we're closing arguments on this case. So thanks for joining me. If you got a jet, please jet. I'm going to get to the Q&As now, which is a real fun part. And before I do that, I saw there were some questions on how did this trial work out for me? Well, interestingly, the, the Amador case that uh, I shared my jury selection notes with, I found that I picked a decent jury. Uh, it was an interesting mix, cultural mix, age mix. Everybody seemed open. Everybody seemed like they were cool to be there. And I felt like I was going to get a fair shot. And that's what I told um, my client. I said, Oscar and his wife, I said, listen, you know, I think you're going to get a fair shot. We've got somebody who rides motorcycles, you know, someone who rode a, rode a Vespa, whoever it was that I got. And I said, you know, I feel pretty good, but nothing ever happens. And the reality was, is there was no offer on the case. So I was surprised in our profession, if you've got a he said, she said, they're both blaming each other. Usually you figure, you know, you settle the case, figure it's 50% comparative faults, you're trying to figure out full value and and you settle the case for 50% of full value, something like that. But in this particular case, they just didn't want to, they didn't want to settle it. They said they want to take a liability verdict. I guess they felt that um, our guy was going to be, you know, found at fault and uh, they wouldn't have to pay anything. So we agreed on a situation of a fixed cap of damages. Um, and, and so then the liability verdict would stand. If we got a hundred percent liability verdict, we were going to get all of the, the top cap. Um, if we lost, we lose. If uh, it was 50-50, we'd get 50%. And whatever percentage we would get, we would get of that number that we agreed upon. So, and there was no offer the whole way through. So um, the case we put in well, I, I thought we did a really good job. You just don't know what a juror's gonna do. Um, I really got along with my adversary and he's like, wow, man. He's like, I thought we were coming in more than 50. Now I think we're, the jury's going to come in less than 50. I don't know what's going to happen. And, um, and I was really pleased. We pulled it out and got a hundred percent, uh, against the, uh, the, the other vehicle. And, um, we only got one descent of the six, uh, on comparative fault against, uh, Oscar. 
Otherwise, everybody went our way, no comparative, nothing. So we got a 100% liability verdict and we got the whole 100% of the damages and we didn't have to do a damages trial, which is great because the verdict came in on like March 9th, which is like a Thursday or Wednesday, I don't know. But that Monday following was like, that's when New York City shut down. I haven't been in a courtroom since. So that's the, that's the end of that story. So I, I guess I picked a good jury. Uh, but again, it could have gone the other way. You just don't know what jurors are going to do. I don't take credit for picking a good jury. I take credit for being prepared and doing the best I could, right? That's all we can do. All right. So now let's take a look at the q and I'm going to try and go through as many of them as I can and get to all the questions. So I have a question here is whether or not I think it's a good idea to address the pandemic during jury selection. Well, you know, what is it about the pandemic that you think you need to address? I would certainly, if I'm going to trial tomorrow and I know I'm going to be in a courtroom with plexiglass or witnesses are going to have masks on their face, I'm definitely going to want to address it. Definitely. Uh, and see, you know, I'm not sure exactly what I would address, but I'd want to address how they feel about that. Uh, if that makes them uncomfortable, is wearing a mask in a courtroom going to make it difficult for them? Uh, do they think they'll be all right to sit through? Whatever those factors are, um, you know, as far as compensating someone, um, I, you may say, I know we're all going through tough times here. Do you think that's going to have an impact on you when, when I get to the point of asking for compensation? So I think, yeah, I don't think you want to be, you know, in a vacuum. Uh, if it's something that when you get to pick a jury that's going on, that's going to affect potentially your case. Yeah. You want to bring it out. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, there's a lot of comments in here that are not questions, so I won't touch on those, but I like them. I encourage everybody to look at the Q&A at some point, see the comments. Um, someone's asking about, you know, young lawyers. What can they do during trial to make a good impression, especially if they're going against an older and more experienced adversary? And if you've missed what I've talked about in my earlier CLEs on trying cases, um, one thing I preach and I will continue to throughout this when we talk about opening statements and everything else is you have to be yourself, okay? If you're nervous and inexperienced, you're nervous and inexperienced. So you show up as a nervous and inexperienced trial lawyer. You'll probably have jurors that'll feel sympathy for you and want you to succeed and want you to do well. And they're not going to be happy if the more experienced adversary is picking on you or acting, like, uh, looking down at you or saying, well, you know, counsel should have known, but, you know, sorry, they don't know that, but let me help you. You know, that's not going to play well. So I've had cases with less experienced lawyers and I try and help them out, you know, behind the scenes. Good job. You know, great opening. You know, we'll talk behind the scenes. You know, uh, if you're young and inexperienced and just be young and inexperienced, just ask questions, just be you, all right? Work hard, be prepared, and the rest will fall into place, all right? Um, someone's asking me if I use any of David Ball's stuff. For those of you who don't know, I don't know Sari Delamotte. That's another question. Uh, David Ball is a very well-respected uh, and published author on jurors, juror perception, and um, I've actually never read any of the stuff. I'd like to, um, but I think, so I don't use any of it. Uh, I think that it's great to do whatever you feel will prepare you. Just like you're tuning in to listen to me. Maybe I'm helping you out. Maybe you're getting nothing out of this and you think it's a waste of time. You don't know until you try it. But even if you've got one thing out of this CLE, then it's worth it, right? So again, 
if you're interested, you know, read it, read something from David Ball, read something from someone else, look at stuff online. Uh, if you get a tidbit that's helpful or a good idea, use it. I love to attend other CLEs. I've listened to other experienced, more experienced lawyers that are legends in the field talk about how they, you know, ask a jury for money. That's a tricky thing. We'll talk about that later on. And I've picked up some tidbits. I've picked up some phrases. Look, I can't be other people. And if I try, it doesn't work. Um, I can only be me. And I can't stress that enough. You have to do what works for you. It's not going to, if you try and be somebody or what you think a good lawyer is going to be, you just have to be you, okay? Um, and see what works. Try it out. Run it by, you know, your friends and family before you use it, okay? Um, do I see any ethical issue in looking up social media during voir dire? You know, as you've seen, you just, you don't have time to like do that. Um, if you want to, you know, if you've got backup and you want to text during a break the name of a juror to someone and ask them to do some digging, um, I think it's fair game. I don't think there's any reason not to. I don't think it's an ethical issue. Um, I just don't do it, uh, probably because it's just I don't have the time or the resource or energy to do it. Um, but I, I don't think it's unethical to do that. Um, so that's my answer. If someone disagrees, please put it out there. I'm not an ethics instructor. I try and be a very ethical lawyer, but I, I don't uh, try and give too much advice out of my wheelhouse. Um, someone's asked about referring to your client's injury. Um, you know, you're not supposed to say, uh, you know, my client had to do this and, and had to do that, but there's an easy way around it. You can say, listen, you're going to hear testimony about injuries in this case. And uh, we expect you're going to hear testimony about a fractured leg, about being hospitalized. So you just have to work around it. There's nothing wrong with that. And you have to talk about the injuries and you are totally entitled to it. Totally. It's really important that you do. Don't miss out on that opportunity. Okay. Um, do I think someone who gets their news from Fox might be a questionable choice as a juror in a criminal case? I can't answer that because I, uh, I don't want to overgeneralize or stereotype and I don't handle criminal cases. So I'm friends with a lot of great criminal defense lawyers, a lot of former prosecutors. And I always say to them, you know, you have it so easy. All you got to do is get one person to go your way out of 12. Come on. Convince one person there's reasonable doubt. What an easy job you have. I've got to usually get unanimous or five of six. It's much harder. Um, so we, we have a good debate about that. But sorry, I can't give you more information. Um, talking about burden of proof, uh, someone's asking about, can you talk about that? They've had jurors tell me that they were told they're going to hold them to a higher burden or more likely than not. It gets tricky, all right? The bottom line is you're not allowed to talk about law during trial or during jury selection. That's the judge's role. Uh, you're not allowed to educate them on law. What you just need to, what I always do is say, do you understand that there's, a, that there's different burdens of proof that you may learn from the judge in this case, that it's not the same in a civil case as in criminal cases? Do you understand that? And will you listen and be open to hearing from the judge who will instruct you on what the burdens of proof are, okay? Um, that it is lesser in a civil case. I'll, I'll go that far and say that. I think that's close. Um, but that's as far as you can get. You can't really talk too much about it, especially if you see on their juror questionnaire that they've been a juror before. You always want to ask, was it civil? Was it criminal? Do you understand if you're in a criminal case, this is different. The burden of proof is not as 
stringent in there? Do you understand that it's different amount of jurors, things are different, and will you have an open mind to listening to the judge and follow the judge's instructions on burden of proof, okay? So that's how you handle those questions in jury selection. Um, good question about the differences in jury selection between state and federal court. In state court, you and your adversary pretty much have free run of the room, okay? As long as you're, you're on the same page, pretty much anything goes for the most part. Totally different in federal court. Federal court, the judge or magistrate trying the case is going to oversee jury selection. It will be in their courtroom. They will bring the jurors right in. They will run jury selection. You will have to submit as part of all your pretrial um, order, which will be all kinds of stuff that you're going to be required to submit, will include jury instruction, questions of what dear questions that you want asked, all kinds of stuff. And your judge will ask, pick which questions they think are appropriate and ask those of the jury. Um, usually they'll ask you to come up if they've missed anything. Sometimes they will give the advocates, the lawyers, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes to ask questions. Um, you know, it's tough, man. Federal court's no joke in so many ways. You have very little uh, control, very little time to question. Uh, it gets done super fast. And basically, you can anticipate uh, a judge to uh, pick your jury for you. I'll never forget, I was uh, in front of the Honorable Judge um, Keenan uh, in the Southern District, very senior judge. Uh, I think he might have been the chief judge at the time that I tried a case, a product liability case in the Southern District probably about 20 years ago. And I had my list of questions and my client in that case, the plaintiff was a German national. Uh, he was a trainer who came for a conference at the Hilton and was working out as a personal trainer, his international conference hosted at the Hilton. He went to work out, he was injured in the gym, broke his wrist on an exercise ball that burst while he was working out with weights. And one of the questions I had was, you know, how do they feel about someone from Germany, you know, coming in to, New York, uh, not a citizen, asking for a New York U.S. citizen jury, you know, I wanted to flush that out and explore the prejudice. So I put that, a lot of questions about it, probably like five or six, submitted it to Judge Keenan, and he didn't ask any of them. He really didn't let us ask anything. So he said, counsel, did I miss anything? Come on up. So I go up, and I said, your honor, you know, I have my hand cup, trying to be discreet. He didn't ask these questions. I'm, what's the problem? What are you concerned about? He says to me. So, well, I'm concerned they're going to be prejudiced against my clients from Germany. You know, I don't know. So he goes, all right, step back, step back, counsel. Any of you jurors have any problems with a German plaintiff? Any, any issues? Any issues? And, nope. No one's raised their hand. Nope. All good. All right, counsel. We're all done here. You've got your germ. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that is tough because, the, like I said, there's a ton of discretion, especially in federal court. You know, you got no nowhere to go when the federal judge is picking your jury. So, and jurors in federal court, your jury has to be unanimous in state civil court in New York. Uh, five of six on any question is good. You don't have to have uh, a unanimous jury. In federal court, you have to have a unanimous jury. Usually what they'll do is they'll put eight jurors on the panel, um, designate alternates, uh, but only if you need them. Otherwise, they'll have all eight deliberate. If you lose one or two during the jury, then they're down to six. So it's a minimum of six. They usually will have you put eight 
has to be unanimous. So it's a little tougher, tougher for getting a unanimous verdict. So something to be on the lookout in federal court. Um, all right, when you're asking questions of everyone, are you dismissing jurors for cause at that point? Um, is the defense questioning two to everybody? You know, how does that work when you have the big room and then you go to the small? It's kind of tricky. Generally, what will happen is you'll get a bunch of hands that throw up. Uh, I got a question. I got a problem. I got a problem. Everyone's got a problem right off the bat, and they want to talk to the lawyers outside of the room. So, you know, that's up to you. It's up to your, you and your adversary how you want to handle that, the jury clerk. What I generally like to do is I say to people, if you've got a serious problem and you don't think you can be on this jury for whatever reason – Raise your hand. We'll meet with you outside. Come on out with your questioning. I like to do that first before we do the six because it saves you time. People come up. I've got a kid in school. I've got no, no, nobody to cover. I can't be here. I've got to drop them off, pick them up. You know, I'm not going to be happy if I'm here. I'm not going to help either of you out. Cause done. Uh, someone who doesn't speak the language done. And then we just say, sit tight. We'll make a note of it. Go back and sit down. And then when we call jurors up at that time, we'll take those out for cause. We'll let the clerk know and handle it that way. Um, generally, um, I'll do a sort of an opening thing, let the adversary do a brief opening uh, to the whole panel, and then we'll do the causes for the big room initially. Then we'll do the whites, the six to eight people. Then we'll do who we think are our cause, but may not jump out at us, of course. Hopefully that helps. Um, are clients allowed in the jury selection room and any thoughts on whether they should be there? So first answer is a named party, as far as I'm aware, is, enti is entitled to be part of every process of their case. They can be at every court appearance, every deposition, every jury selection. They can be in the trial, sit next to you, everything. Um, it's up to you and your client whether you're going to have them there. I never have uh, client with me in jury selection. I need to be in my zone. I need to be focused. I don't do that. I don't think I've ever seen a defendant in jury selection. It's usually not done. It would be unusual. Um, I think lawyers usually don't want their clients there, so don't encourage that, but I believe it is permissible uh, if that's important. I don't like them there. All right. Um, all right, so someone's asking me, they've never picked a jury, and they're asking if the methods apply to criminal jury selection as well. You know what? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe somebody can chime in. I've never picked a jury in a criminal case. I would be lost if I had to go do so, and I wouldn't know the parameters and how it works. So all I am talking about is in a civil case, not criminal, okay? All right. So under White's method, uh, can you move somebody for cause just when you're in your plaintiff's question before uh, your adversary? And the answer is no. So that's all done usually when you step out with the panel. You just make a list. If it's clear someone's for cause when they're, when they're up in the front being questioned, just make a note, cause, and put a line through it, and then just stop asking them any more questions. <laughs> Don't waste any time right off the bat. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. If someone raises their hand and says, now that I've heard more, I just don't think I can be fair. I'm really sorry. I say, thank you for your honesty. I appreciate that. I won't waste anybody's time. I won't question you anymore. I'll make a note of it. And I make a note, clause with a line, and then I move on to the next person. Then when I step out with my adversary, I say, you agree that's for cause, right? And usually the answer is yes, if it's that clear. Okay, if not, we have a discussion about it. 
How many juries have I used? Of those, what percentage have rendered favorable verdicts? Can you tell if you've alienated someone on the jury? Do you try to repair it? What do you do? So I don't know how to answer that question. I've tried a lot of cases. I've picked jurors on cases where cases have settled. Um, I've won, fortunately, more cases than I've lost, but I've lost cases. Anybody that tries a lot of cases, you're going to lose cases, especially a lot of the cases that have to be tried are the tough ones where there is no offer and you're going up against, you know, a stacked deck to begin with. And that's why you're on trial with no offer because you don't have the strongest case or you have problems. So, um, you know, I, I've never had a juror tell me that I've been, that I've alienated them and that's why I've lost, you know, usually I get, Oh, you know, we, we thought you were great, Mr. Smiley, uh, but, you know, we just, you know, we didn't think that X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that's why we, we didn't find for your client. And I'm like, great, you know, you liked me, but uh, you sent us home packing. So, um, you know, you don't know if you've offended someone or not. You should never act in a way that could possibly offend someone or lose your credibility. That's why it's so important to be respectful of everybody from the moment you enter that jury pool room to when you have a jury to every time you're in a courtroom, to how you conduct yourself, because you never want to alienate anybody at all. You don't want to be in any position where you have to try and repair any damage. You don't want to cause the damage to begin with. All right. Do you have to have a full six of no challenges before you exercise peremptories? No. So let me clarify. Peremptory challenges and cause challenges are completely separate, have nothing to do with each other. You have unlimited challenges for cause. If someone should not be on the jury because there's a cause, they can't be fair for whatever reason that you and or your adversary has flushed out. And sometimes you want someone on your jury and your adversary says, no, no, I think they're for cause. You're like, they're not for cause just because, you know, they've had three lawsuits and been injured. You know, they said they could be fair. You just think they're for cause because they've had three lawsuits and been injured and you think they're going to go against you. And then you sort of have this tit for tat. And then sometimes you have to go to the JHL where you bring this witness in front of the judge and let the judge question or them question. The key phrase is, can you be fair? And if they answer yes, then it's not for cause. If they answer no, then it's for cause. So that's cause. Peremptories are completely separate. So you can use cause challenges and then you get to your peremptories. You can have no causes and get to your peremptories. They're totally separate. Okay. Three peremptories each, unlimited causes if it's truly and you agree on it. So you have to agree for it to be on cause. You can't just strike someone for cause and then use your peremptories. Cause has to be agreed upon, okay? Or the judge has to agree it's for cause. You can't unilaterally get rid of somebody for cause. Sorry if that wasn't clear. That's what your peremptories are for. When you just realize, I got to get this person off my jury, and, I, and they say they're going to be fair, and I know they're, they're not going to go my way. I'm not going to be who I want on my jury. In light of COVID, is Strzok's method less likely to be used nowadays? Good question. I don't know. They could put 30 people in a room, have a big ceremonial courtroom where everybody could be spaced out. I don't know the answer to that. I haven't been in a jury part yet uh, since uh, we've been in these times. So time will tell how that plays out. Uh, if someone has had an experience, please chime in. I love that there's all these questions. I will stay on uh, for another, you know, five minutes or so in fairness to everybody that needs to go. Um, but I want to preface uh, the, the end that we're getting to with all these questions, which I'm so appreciative of, is email me, okay? Email me, call me, 
reach out to me. Um, I will respond to your question. Um, probably not this afternoon because I got a big birthday next week. Getting ready for a big party I'm hosting at my home tomorrow. People coming in, so I'm going to be a little busy this afternoon. But next Wednesday is the day. You'll probably see an email blast out to that. And uh, looking forward to uh, a big celebration. But I will get back to you next week, if not sooner. Email me. It's up on my screen, asmiley at smileylaw.com. I also want to let everybody know before you sign off that I've been inviting people to connect with me just to get to know each other, to talk referrals, to talk uh, workshop on casing, on cases, strategy, values, just to shoot the breeze, talk about cars, uh, mutual acquaintances. So be on the lookout. I've uh, opened up more spots, but I've been having these Zooms. I send out calendar links to everybody. Just pick a spot. I'd love to meet all of you, do one-on-one. So that's a good time uh, to, to address questions that you may have, all right? But let me just answer a few more questions before I say goodbye. Um, I can't tell you which counties you struck or whites because it changes. I've experienced both, but I can tell you much more use whites than struck, right? You're more likely to be in a white scenario than a struck scenario. Have I tried using yellow sticky notes when you put on top? I've tried, but I find that gets messy. Some people do it, you know, so instead of doing new sheets with the grids, you just put stickies on top. Again, you have to use whatever method works best for you. Sometimes trial and error. I go the way that I do it and it's, and it's worked. How do I deal with implicit bias? You know, race, ethnicity, gender. Tough questions, you know. Again, you got to go with your gut. You got to think, you know, whether there is bias against your client for whatever reason and who may be, have that bias based on their background, their experience in so many different ways. It's really tough. People are not always truthful in jury selection. Think about it. Nobody wants to be a jury duty. Think about how everyone tells you, oh, you're a lawyer, you're a friend of mine. How do I get out of jury selection? What do I say? You know, so, and then you wonder if the people who actually agree are, you know, what's wrong with these people that they have time that they'd rather be here than doing whatever else they're doing. So you just don't know if people are being honest or not. That's why it's such a gut, gut sense that you have to go with and do your best. Okay. Yeah, there's so many good questions out there and there's a lot of unknowns and you should have a lot of questions and keep asking them. Keep asking them of me, of your colleagues, uh, who you work with, the people that you go to. I'm here for you. I'm here for everybody to be your mentor. If you don't have one, people have been reaching out to me. I look forward to sharing, um, you know, whatever I can, uh, whatever knowledge I have with you to help you be better. Um, you know, a question that I just saw touch on this is if there's a juror that's got a really strong personality, um, I generally don't like those types of jurors. Uh, I don't want someone that I think is going to take over in the jury box or when they go back to deliberate, who's going to try and boss everybody around or thinks that they can teach them too much or run the show in there. So, you know, try and stay away from that. Try and find people that you think just appear to be reasonable people, you know, reasonable and fair people that don't have it a grudge uh, or an ax to bear. I think that's your best bet. And last one, someone asked me, um, what if they have tough names to pronounce? And if you've ever picked a jury in Queens, it's a, it's a cultural melting pot. So you say, I'm sorry, I know I'm going to butcher your name. Please tell me how to correct it, but I'm going to give it a shot. And then you say it, you ask them how to correct it. And then you maybe write it down. If it's super hard, just say, you know, may I call you Mr. C or Mrs. C, you know, just because I don't want to, I don't want to offend you or, or butcher your name. So 
just try and be nice. Try and relax. Try and think if you were in their situation. I, I attended jury duty um, in Brooklyn when I got called for jury duty. I went and sat through it. It was fascinating. You know, I encourage you to do that if you can. Go through and, and see that perspective. So, you know, that will help you. Um, so I'm going to wrap it up now. And I want to thank you all. Um, we're going to continue this. We're going to have great discussions. I'm going to help you, hopefully, be really well prepared uh, for your opening statements, your directs, your crosses, your summations. And uh, please reach out to me. Stay in touch. If you haven't listened to my podcast, you can find it on iTunes, Spotify. It's the Mentor ESQ. I think you'll like what I have to share. A lot of CLEs, a lot of credit, a lot of interviews. I interviewed Michelle. Uh, it's awesome. Interviewed my father. I interviewed the, the Brooklyn District Attorney, uh, you know, um, Eric Gonzalez. Uh, lots of fascinating people. And uh, stay in touch. I look forward to seeing you October 6th. We're going to talk opening statements. So, uh, and if you're listening to this on my podcast, please share it, like it, send it to others. And thanks as always for being a subscriber and tuning in. See you at the next one. Okay.